traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please check out my new course, The Bronze Age, at avid.fm ancient. That's avid.fm ancient. There's a 100% satisfaction guarantee, so please sign up by April 30th, 2021. Thanks again for listening. The Taurus Mountains dominate southeastern Anatolia, separating the Anatolian Plateau from the Mediterranean coast. From time immemorial, the range has been associated with fierce storms, which is why it gets its name from the bull, the Proto-Indo-European Tauros, the symbolic animal of most of the local storm gods. These included the Syrian storm god Hadad, as well as the Hittite god Tarhuna, the lord of the land of Hatti, who oversaw the heavens and mountains. The role of rain and abundant harvests, or its absence in regional drought and famine, elevated Tarhuna to chief of the Hittite pantheon. His Hurrian equivalent was the storm god Teshub, depicted wielding a triple thunderbolt or two-headed axe or mace. Though the bull remained his primary symbol, he was also known for his faithful horses, Seri and Huri, who pulled his chariot across the sky. Closely related, but stemming from clearer Indo-European roots, was the Luwian storm god Tarhunt. In contrast to his fellow gods, Tarhunt's symbol was mainly the horse, and horses were used in special rituals to try to gain his favor. Tarhunt had numerous incarnations. Tarhunt of the battlefield, Tarhunt of the heavens, even Tarhunt of the vineyards, tasked with blessing the royal vines and helping the wine to flow. Another epithet of Tarhunt, of the thunderbolt, or of the flash, used the Luwian term Pihashashish, the origin of the name of the mythical flying horse, Pegasus. It was this latter epithet that was mainly invoked by the new Hittite king, Muatali II, as he claimed Tarhunt as his personal lord and savior. 
1295 BC, his father, Mursili II, just died, and Muatali thanked Tarhunt for making him king of the Hittites. And not to throw any shade on Tarhunt, but it didn't hurt that Muatali was Mursili's eldest son, or that he'd likely been groomed to inherit the throne for the better part of a decade. Either way, Muatali was king, and one of his first official challenges was a piece of unfinished business. As we covered last episode, back around 1320 BC, Mursili II had crushed a revolt in the western territory of Arzawa, with a little help from a meteor strike. The Arzawan king Uhazidi died, his son Piyama Karunta was taken prisoner, and the territory had been divided into three new vassal kingdoms. Early in his reign, one of these vassal kings wrote to Muatali to report on a local renegade. The troublemaker's name was Piyama Radu, which suggests that he may have been the son of the imprisoned Piyama Karunta, which would have made him the rightful king of the abolished kingdom of Arzawa. Though stripped of any legitimate titles, Piyama Radu made powerful friends. The coastal city of Milawata, classical Miletus, was back under control of the Ahiawans, and Piyama Radud married his daughter to a Mycenaean lord named Atpa. After making the alliance, Piyama Radud seized a number of western lands, including Lasba, the Isle of Lesbos, and the Hittite ally of Walusa. And just so you know, when we're talking about Walusa, we very likely mean Homer's Troy. Anyway, Muatali'd ordered his vassal to drive Piyama Radu out of the region. But the attempt had clearly failed. So Muatali dispatched a Hittite army under his general Gasu to bring the renegade to justice. Though Walusa had returned to Hittite control, the confrontation with Piyama Radud end up lasting for decades. Despite its tenacity and long duration, the Western conflict isn't the one that Muatali's best known for. No, that one began around 1293, when the Egyptian pharaoh Horemheb died and passed the throne to a close friend, advisor, high priest, and fellow career army officer named Ramesses I. Ramesses I was around the same age, but unlike Horemheb, he already had a son and grandson to carry on his new dynasty. Two years later, when Ramesses died, the throne passed to his son, Seti I. Seti quickly proved himself an energetic and skillful ruler, whose primary goal was restoring Egypt as a major regional power. In his first regnal year, 1291, he began cementing Egypt's hold on the lands of southern Syria. Forts were attacked and prisoners of war were carted off to be ritually executed in the Temple of Amun at Karnak. But this was only the warm-up. After gaining control of southern Syria, Seti turned his attention north to the lands of Kadesh and Amuru. According to historian Trevor Bryce, 
these kingdoms had, in the past, fluctuated in their allegiance between Egypt and Hatti. Although they had been Hittite vassals since the latter part of Subaluliuma's reign, Egypt had never accepted the legitimacy of Hittite control over them. He also notes that while Muatali was preoccupied with western Anatolia, both Kadesh and Amuru fell to the pharaoh. The Egyptian army struck so quickly that they faced only minimal resistance. King Nikmadu of Kadesh, whom Mursili II had placed on the throne, likely fled to nearby Aleppo, where the Hittite viceroy Talmi Sharuma sent word to the Hittite king. Meanwhile, the pharaoh entered the city of Kadesh in triumph and erected a victory stele. Seti I was accompanied on campaign by his son, the pharaoh's offspring by his royal queen, Tuya. The boy was named after his grandfather, Ramesses, or Ra is the one who bore him. Muatali acted quickly, leading an army down to Kadesh to restore it to Hittite control. In a later monument raised at Karnak, the pharaoh Seti I records smiting the Asiatics, beating down the Hittites, slaying their chiefs, and charging among them like a tongue of fire. But in reality, he'd likely already left, and Egyptian forces garrisoning the city quickly pulled back south. For Seti, it had been less an attempt to conquer and hold, and more an attempt to illustrate how easily, quickly, and deeply he could strike into Hittite Syria. For Muatali, it was apparently lesson learned. There are no written records, but it's commonly assumed that in the wake of the conflict, Muatali and Seti reached an understanding. Everything south of Kadesh was Egyptian, while everything north was Hittite. Understanding or no, Muatali faced a real dilemma. Protecting the Hittite capital of Hattusas had traditionally been a full-time job, particularly against the constantly hostile Kazka. But now Syria also needed defense against a militant Egyptian dynasty. Faced with two contrasting priorities, Muatali made a radical choice to divide the Hittite Empire between himself and his brother. His decision was actually a bit more radical, because his younger brother Hattusili was to remain behind in charge of Hatti, while Muatali went off south to construct a brand new capital. To be clear, he wasn't just setting up some staging ground for a future war with Egypt. That arguably could have been done without the king's presence. No, what he was actually doing was transferring his family, his court, and all the gods of the Hittite pantheon to a virgin site with no former history, or possibly even a name. And given the fact that no previous Hittite king had abandoned Hattusis without being physically driven out, there was likely a bit more to the story. As I mentioned, Muatali had a strong devotion to the Luwian storm god Tarhunt, and he named his new capital Tarhuntasa, the city of Tarhunt, 
which suggests that there may have been an Akhenaten aspect, getting some distance from the traditional capital to more freely worship as God. We don't know precisely where the new capital was located, but the territory it governed, also called Tarhuntasa, lay south of Hatti and west of Kizawadna along the central Mediterranean coast. In classical terms, this likely meant it was composed of Pamphylia, the place of all tribes, along with parts of western Cilicia. The new location provided access to northern Syria and western Anatolia, both the regions that were likely to be more trouble. In tandem, Muatali elevated his brother Hattusili to governor of the upper land, the territory to the north and east of Hatti. And again, I have a map posted on the blog and Facebook sites. Hattusili was based in the northern city of Hakpisa, where he could keep one eye on the former capital and the other on the always troublesome Kaska. And why not install him in Hattusas itself? I suspect you know the answer. No matter how much he trusted his brother, Muatali saw no need to give disgruntled nobles in his former capital a convenient figure to rally around. Muatali enhanced his brother's role by naming Hattusili the King of the North and giving him control over 13 Hittite territories. Each of the brothers had supreme authority within their respective spheres of influence, though Muatali retained preeminence as the sole Hittite Great King, or, in his new formulation, the Great King of Tarhuntasa. In addition to founding a brand new capital, Muatali's known for another innovation, inscribing cliff faces and large stone monuments with texts in the Luwian language. Where the Hittite language was written in cuneiform, the Luwian language was now being written in a new hieroglyphic script. Just to confuse matters more, Hittite scribes also learned how to transcribe Luwian hieroglyphs into a form of Luwian cuneiform. But generally, as a rule of thumb, Hittite was written exclusively in cuneiform, and Luwian mainly in hieroglyphics. Together with the move to Tarhuntasa, the inscriptions may have been an attempt by the king to appeal to his Luwian subjects. In 1279 BC, the pharaoh Seti I passed away and was succeeded by his son, Ramesses II. As mentioned earlier, Ramesses had been present during his father's previous conquest of Kadesh, and from early on he set his sights on conquering northern Syria. His first years were spent combating pirates and dispatching disloyal Canaanite princes. Then, in 1275, Ramesses crossed the informal frontier between Egyptian and Hittite Syria. The coastal territory of Amuru was split between pro-Egyptian and pro-Hittite factions, and Ramesses II had been called up north to defend Egyptian allies. The pharaoh used the brief campaign to engage his vassals and scout the terrain. But the following year, 1274, Ramesses made a full commitment. Four divisions of the Egyptian army, 
between 20 and 50,000 soldiers, including 2,500 elite charioteers, headed north for Kadesh. Muatali II met the challenge, gathering an even larger army and a comparable number of charioteers and marching them south to meet him. What ensued was the famous Battle of Kadesh, the largest chariot battle in all of human history. The battle's also unusual in that a detailed Egyptian account survives, which also makes it the best documented battle in all of ancient history. One interesting aspect from the Hittite side is that we have a list of all the princes and sub-kings who fought with Muatali. Along with his brother, Hattusili, the king of the north, Muatali engaged both of his cousins, Talmi Sharuma of Aleppo and Sahuru Nuash of Carchemish. Another ally was Shatuara, who'd inherited the vassal kingdom of Mitanni from his father, Shatiwaza. From western Anatolia came King Masturish of Seha Riverland and King Piyama Inarish of Willusa, again, very likely ancient Troy. Closer to home, the alliance was rounded out by King Nikmepa of the city of Ugarit and King Nikmadu of Kadesh. On the Egyptian side, the only notable auxiliary force was a body of Sheridan mercenary troops. Based on their name, the Sheridan may have hailed from the island of Sardinia in the western Mediterranean. They'd gain more prominence a century later as part of the infamous Sea Peoples. I'm not going to walk through all the details of the conflict, and there is plenty of detail if you want to dig in, but I'll try to give you the gist. Ramesses II was anxious for glory, and he drove his personal Amun division as quickly as they could march. When he reached the Orontes River, with the other division still lagging behind, he suddenly found himself under attack by the bulk of the Hittite army. The Amun division was completely shattered, and, as Bryce notes, a total rout of the Egyptian forces and the capture and death of the pharaoh seemed inevitable. Ramesses personally held his ground, hoping for the arrival of his remaining divisions. But, according to Bryce, he was actually saved by a very timely arrival of reinforcements from Amuru. The auxiliaries bought the pharaoh time to bring up the rest of the Egyptian army, after which the battle proceeded with both sides at maximum strength. It's hard to get a real sense of the scope. Up to 100,000 men and 5,000 chariots attacking each other across a dusty plain. So, what was the battle's outcome? Well, there are a few different answers. In terms of royal propaganda, each side claimed a major victory. In terms of how their armies fared, both sides likely suffered tremendous losses. But in terms of actual control of Syria, we have something more solid to go on. Following the battle, Ramesses II returned to Egypt, while Muatali retained Kadesh, reconquered Amuru, and continued campaigning south toward Egyptian territory. 
He eventually succeeded in capturing Damascus, which he placed under control of his brother, Hattusili. Ramesses later recaptured the city, but from that point forward, Damascus, not Kadesh, was the effective imperial frontier. At the end of the campaign, Muatali and Hattusili returned to Anatolia. When Muatali died two years later, he was succeeded by his son, Uri Teshub, who took the throne as King Mursili III. With Egypt less of a major threat, and no special place in his heart for Tarhunt, Mursili decided to return the Hittite capital to Hattusas, which meant, at least to some extent, displacing his uncle, Hattusili. Under Muatali, Hattusili had been a junior partner in governing the kingdom. But Mursili was reluctant to trust his uncle with any significant power. So he stripped Hattusili of his northern kingship while leaving him in control of the cities of Hakpisa and Narek. Hattusili had some history with Narek. During his time up north, he'd recaptured Narek from the Kaska tribe, then taken on the role of high priest of the local storm god, also named Narek, to oversee the city's rebuilding. But either way, Hattusili's new role was both a serious demotion and a pretty insulting move. On the upside, at least he had a wife and family to share his effective banishment. Which means it's time to introduce you all to Hattusili's wife, Puduhepa. Puduhepa, hurrying for the sun goddess Hepat creates, was a native of Kizawadna. I mentioned last episode that this was the Anatolian territory south of the Hollis, approaching the Mediterranean coast in northwest Syria, that was mainly populated by Luwians and Hurrians. Puduhepa was the daughter of a priestly family from the city of Lawazantaya. Her father, Pentipshari, was local priest of the goddess Shaushka Ishtar, and Puduhepa was trained as an Ishtar priestess. While returning from the Battle of Kadesh, the Hittite prince Hattusili happened to pass through the city, and the minute he spotted Puduhepa, he apparently fell pretty hard. Though it's also worth noting that, at the time, he was the 35-year-old hero of the Battle of Kadesh, and she was only 15. A royal marriage was quickly arranged, and Hattusili and Puduhepa set off for his northern kingdom, which is where they ruled for the next two years, until Mursili inherited the throne. Stripped of power and exiled from court, the couple were left with plenty of time to nurse a slow resentment. But Mursili couldn't really worry about that. He had bigger fish to fry. First off, the pharaoh Ramesses II had returned to northern Syria, capturing the cities of Dapur and Tunip and installing Egyptian garrisons. Which, to be honest, was mainly an annoyance. Since the Hittites were unable to retake the cities, but the Egyptians were also stuck inside with no real means to expand. But Mursili also had a much bigger problem. Without consulting him or getting permission, Mursili's vassal, 
King Shatuara of Mitanni, had launched an attack on Assyria. It may have been a preventative move, but either way, it did not go well. The current Assyrian king, Adad-Nirari, defeated Shatuara, threw him in chains, and dragged him off to the capital of Assur. Once there, he was forced to swear public fealty to the Assyrians and pledged to give them yearly tribute for all the days of his life. If you picture Mitanni being cut by the Euphrates, Supaliliumid annexed the western half way back in 1327. Now Assyria controlled the eastern half, including its capital, Washukani. And this wasn't Adad-Nirari's first big conquest. He'd already humbled Kassite Babylonia. But regardless of the growing threat and the loss of his Mitanni vassal, Mursili decided not to campaign against him. Adad-Nirari apparently took his non-action as a no-hard-feelings kind of thing and decided to shoot Mursili a friendly letter. In it, he called himself Great King, called Mursili his brother, and invited himself to visit the Amana Mountains in Hittite-controlled northern Syria for a royal bonding retreat. In response, Mursili showed that, at least in terms of passive aggression, the Hittites remained the unchallenged regional superpower. So, you've become a great king, have you? But why do you still continue to speak about brotherhood and coming to Mount Amana? For what reason should I call you brother? Do those who are not on familiar terms with each other call each other brother? Why then should I call you brother? Were you and I born of the same mother? So, yeah, super uncomfortable. And it's a pretty safe bet that Adad Narari took him off the Christmas card list. But sadly, Mercili's troubles were only just beginning. And this next one was basically all his fault. I mean, it was bad enough that he'd shuffled Hattusili off to relative obscurity up north. But for whatever reason, in 1265, he replaced his uncle as lord of Hakpisa and Narek, which left Hattusili with nothing but one small fortress. Hattusili was a very proud man. Not only had he effectively co-ruled the empire with his older brother, Muatali, but he'd spent decades defending the northern frontier against constant imminent threats. As he himself recorded, To whatever land of the enemy I turned my eyes, none of them could turn my eyes back. I conquered the lands of the enemy, one after the other. The favor of my lady Ishtar was always with me. This was not a man to slight and expect no repercussions. At this point, I'll just let Hattusili take up the story. For seven years I submitted to the king, but at a divine command and with human urging, Mursili sought to destroy me. He took Hakpisa and Narek from me. Now I submitted to him no longer. I made war against him. Hattusili continues that he didn't strike first, but... In a civilized manner, I communicated with Mursili thus. 
You have begun hostilities with me. Now you are great king, but I am king of only one fortress. That is all you have left me. Come, Ishtar of Samuha and the storm god of Narek shall decide the case for us. Mersili apparently answered the call. I mean, really, how could he not? The problem was, by marching the Hittite army up north, he was taking the fight to his uncle's turf. A land of generals, soldiers, and tribes, all potentially loyal to Hattusili. Mersili tried to even the odds by enlisting some local support of his own, a former prince of the upper land named Sipazidi. But in the end, it made no discernible difference. Mersili based himself in the city of Samuha and started to plan his assault. But Hattusili marched south, surrounded the city, and eventually forced his surrender. Without a blow being struck, Mersili III was overthrown, and Hattusili III had become the Hittite great king, and was immediately confronted with two thorny issues. The first, of course, was what to do with Mersili III. Now back to his birth name of Uri Teshub. According to Bryce, banishment from the capital was the traditional punishment imposed on members of the royal family who had fallen from grace or been removed from power. Preferably to a location far from the seat of power, but still under Hittite control. Hattusili chose the Nuhashi lands in Syria as the place of exile. The new king likely ordered the Hittite viceroys of Aleppo and Carchemish to keep a wary eye on their royal cousin. The second thorny issue was Uri Teshub's brother, Muatali's other son, Karunta. For years, possibly decades, Karunta had been raised in Hattusili's household alongside his own children in the northern city of Hakpisa. Hattusili wanted to honor his brother's son, but was wary of giving him too much power. In the end, Hattusili granted Karunta the vassal kingship of Tarhuntasa, Muatali's former capital. The posting had a pretty strong downside. Tribesmen from Luka, classical Lycia, had recently invaded Tarhuntasa and Karunta had to begin his rule by fighting to reclaim lost territory. The arrangements made by the new great king were reasonable, given the circumstances. But the circumstances themselves were pretty strained, and Hattusili knew that only a successful kingship would help to banish lasting memories of his dubious claim to the throne. 